Hey everyone, this is just Luke jumping in at the beginning to let you know that uh, originally when David and I recorded this episode, we planned it on being one episode, but after recording it occurred to me that it'd probably be better as a two-parter. So if the tone sounds like we're supposed to be doing it all at once, <laughs> that's why. But I decided after listening to it that it would be working better in two parts. So what you have here is part one of our Stranger Things episode, season one. And it will be focused primarily on the kids of the show. And in part two, you'll hear us talk about Joyce, Hopper, Nancy, Steve, Jonathan, and kind of the show stuff and the 80s motifs in general. So thanks for listening and enjoy part one of Stranger Things season one. Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, I don't know if you are aware of this off the top of your head, but do you realize that this is our 69th episode? And that doesn't include addendums or bonus episodes. I know. So my question <laughs> is to you, what's your favorite number? Six or nine? <laughs> um, I like nine because it's bigger. Ah, <laughs> well said, my friend. Well said. <laughs> Although, that was just for fun. This one's a real question about this episode. Do you think if Sigmund Freud was writing in the 1980s, he would have developed the theory of the id, the ego, and the superego? <laughs> hey man, you're, you're, you're waffling here, man. You're waffling. <laughs> yes. Anyway. I just feel like, um, you know, if I'm feeling really reflective... Uh, I just need that super ego. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> with like you're blueberries in it. Concentrating so hard that your nose is bleeding. <laughs> well, I don't know if I've ever concentrated that hard. <laughs> you just you just not got up your game loop. <laughs> mm. I think the the most concentration I get is from pulpy orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, today we are going to be doing. Season one of the TV show of Stranger Things. This was actually, I guess this was your suggestion. So what what was it about this show that made you think, oh yeah, let's do it? I just feel like it was one of the iconic shows of my 20s. Like I feel like that came out and that was something that like everyone wanted to watch. Kind of like Game of Thrones mm. or Breaking Bad, but maybe even a little bit bigger than that. Right? Oh like, wow. Everyone wanted to see that show. Yeah, it was marketed quite well when it came out, and I guess it it was still in your twenties because it season one came out in twenty sixteen. So yeah, so I was like twenty seven years old. I was mm, like spring chicken, you know, just a, just a young whippersnapper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I guess now you've seen season one through twice. Yes, yes, I have, and you as well. Yeah, same. I watched it basically when it came out, uh, maybe. A week after, I don't know. I, th I had a friend at the time 
refer it to me saying as it was something that he thought I would like a lot, and he was quite right. Yes. And then yes. I rewatched it again, obviously, for this podcast. And um, I guess my opening line on it would be that it wasn't that long ago, so I still remembered a lot of it, but it was nice to watch it again because a lot of shows or movies they'll do a great story or a great idea. I'm thinking specifically of like Christopher Nolan movies. I find a lot of Christopher Nolan movies are just big ideas, awesome thoughts, but kind of not empty on character, but it's not the focus. Like you just don't feel it's a character-driven movie a lot of the time. Yeah, it's an idea-driven movie. True, true. And then there's other movies that could be very character-driven, but like very, very light on story. I think maybe those... um, the Linklater Before Sunset trilogy right. is a good example True. of like awesome character yes. and, and conversation, but like not much story <laughs> going on. <laughs> yeah. Whereas what I found so just beautiful about the Stranger Things, uh, especially season one, rewatching this was it's so both. It's it such is. a great story and such a character driven show. And the, And these kids are phenomenal actors and actresses just incredible incredible ability just the charm they're so charming it's it's beautiful and and so childlike like Mm -hmm. so many facial expressions that you feel like those are emotions that i experienced when i was young and so like obviously we have the nucleus of the kids which is so wonderful but also um how it extends to i got so much so so much out of joyce and Hopper's characters in this watch through, especially for really true fiction stuff. And then even just the whole kind of Nancy, Steve, Jonathan third, like tertiary plot line, I found so charming as well as the, as the season went on. Yeah. And, and each of them is kind of woven together as if it doesn't even feel like there's, it feels like in any given moment you're with a main character, but you don't feel as if there's a main character to it at all. Mm. It's like little vignettes. Yeah. Obviously there's the eighties nostalgia, which is amazing, but all of this, you, you really care about these kids and these characters. And yet it's all wrapped up in this really great mystery story. (laughs) Yeah. Like why is this monster in the woods grabbing people and eating them? And where did this like, telepathic telekinetic wonder kid come from exactly yeah and what a what a way it just starts us off with the vanishing of will byers right i like i even look at the cinema it's not like the disappearance of will byers or where is where will byers right it's the vanishing and there's just something about that word vanishing that feels so much more kind of like ecstatic like there's there's more at stake the the you know, the, the, we're running out of time faster. It's so well done. It's just so well done. Mm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this has been a cultural staple for the last five years or so, almost five years. And I feel like it's one that I've referenced a lot in other episodes. So I can't, like, it shouldn't surprise me that when you when you recommended it, but I didn't even think about doing it, maybe because it's so recent. Yeah, I, I think it hit me on Halloween. I think I was just, you know, making pumpkin pie or whatever. And I was like, oh, Stranger Things. Mm. That's like that's kind of a, a little bit spooky but fun, right? <laughs> and I think when you watch the the first and second seasons, mm. more maybe in the second, but like the Halloween is really a big theme, right? These kids love Halloween, the best night of the year. 
Yeah, well, it's in the second season where they dress up as Ghostbusters. <laughs> yes, but I, yeah, I guess I mean more like you get. I mean, they, they, these kids like Dungeons and Dragons. They've yeah. got like a, they've got like a little bit of a, a fan, fantastical, you know, almost spiritual side. Well, I would even point out that yeah, yeah, agreed. But I would even point out that uh, it's it's just such clever storytelling to use the props of the show to explain the stuff that's difficult to understand. So. I'm thinking of that scene where Eleven explains the upside down to Dustin and Mike and Lucas, just how she uses the Dungeons and Dragons board, and they yeah. they and it they, just makes sense to us after that. Right? Yeah, they comprehend. Like, they comprehend it through the idea. I think it's called the Veil of Shadows or something. Like all of what's happening, they have a Dungeons and Dragons correlate for. Yeah, the Shadow Walkers. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, and the Demogorgon. I thought we could go through the kids first, and then Joyce and Hopper, and then Nancy, Steve, and Jonathan. So Let's do it. Okay, so just before we get to a, a quick little plot rundown of season one of Stranger Things, I uh, just want to say a big thank you to everyone who listens. If you're interested in getting in contact with us, you can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Really True Fiction. We have a page. And if you like the show, we ask that you would subscribe on any of the uh, podcasting apps that you use so that you can get notified every time we have a new episode come out. And uh, if you feel so inclined to leave us a rating or particularly a review, that would really help us grow and uh, move up the charts, and we would really appreciate it. So anyway, David, uh, do you want to walk us through season one of Stranger Things? Yeah, so essentially we're introduced to this uh, group of four young boys playing Dungeons and Dragons, which, you know, plays a little bit of a special place in my heart as being someone who kind of was raised in a world that was maybe Dungeons and Dragons adjacent for most of it. And then, you know, I finally got into actual, you know, storytelling, role-playing games, probably more in my 20s. Haven't done it in a while, but it's so much fun to just create imaginary worlds mm-hmm. and and experience them. And I think people don't realize how normal it was for a lot of us young guys who, you know, we were we were just nerdy people who enjoyed, really enjoyed fantasy stories, having yeah. fun. Uh, I, I love how that was portrayed because it's so nostalgic, I guess, for the 80s as well, but for a lot of people in our generation too, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the and the four of them just having so much fun in that opening scene playing Dungeons and Dragons. It's just so great. Exactly. Exactly. So so that that's our beginning, and that's kind of how we're introduced to this idea of the demigorgon. Or demogorgon. And the demogorgon is then kind of introduced as chasing Will, and then the, at the end of the first episode, Will disappears. He just vanishes. Well, it's actually uh, close to the beginning. Yes, sorry. It's okay. Like, that's kind of our entrance into this world, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And then we proceed to get introduced to all of our various characters. They're all interacting. Essentially, Will isn't in this almost at all, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. He only appears in memories that people have of him. And then there's almost this communication. So we feel like we're getting to know Will because he's communicating somehow through the lights, through these Christmas lights that his mother sets up. Uh, so Will is a character that we are getting to know, and he's a, kind of a scared kid. Is basically the character that we're getting to know. <laughs> yeah, who's trying to get back to his mom, and then we're obviously introduced to all of these other different relationships. 
And I think what's one of the most fascinating parts of this is, is it all feels seamless, right? Then we're introduced to Nancy and Nancy's dating the kind of the most popular guy in school named Steve. And, you know, we get this kind of high school drama mixed with this crazy sci-fi adventure story, like mystery novel. Mm, And what ends up happening is we slowly are introduced to this 11 who had psychic powers and she becomes friends with this group of kids as they, as they unravel this government scheme, essentially to cover up an experiment gone wrong. Mm. Uh, I think that's like a really brief summary, but like, yeah, uh, I could go, I think we'll go into each detail as we talk about the characters, I imagine. And basically Joyce, who is, Will's mom and Hopper, who is the town sheriff, are like kind of leading the charge to try and find this missing Will. And Hopper doesn't buy the government's explanation for everything. Yes. And he keeps digging. And so they find more of the truth about what was going on in this government lab. And the government lab basically tearing a seam into another dimension, which allowed the Demogorgon to be able to pass in between in the gate and Eleven being the kid that was, like, trying to spy on the Russians in this other <laughs> alternate and dimension. And somehow was the one that kind of, like, put a rift in the psychic universe between these two realms. Yeah, and she's got these kind of untapped, and she doesn't even know the full extent of them, but she can use them a little bit, these telekinetic powers, which uh, become quite useful <laughs> later in the season. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. And uh, well, what an ending that is. Mm-hmm. I just got to say, oh, yeah, uh, it always hits me every time. Yeah, I definitely teared up a bit, too, when that was happening. I always tear up when uh, when Mike jumps off the cliff or walks off. The oh, cliff yeah. What a good scene. And and then gets stopped in the air and she pulls him back up and then breaks the guy's arm like, oh, it's just you get so many, you know, nostalgic, mm. deep emotions that just pop up. eh? Yeah. So, um. Which was your favorite kid? I don't know. I think when I first watched it, maybe I thought like uh, Mike, maybe. Mm. But now I, I don't know. I feel like there's a little bit of every kid in all of us. Sure. I agree. I agree. And maybe this is broader than season one because I think he grows even more and, and becomes more awesome. But I'm definitely on Team Dustin. Yeah, <laughs> Dustin. I love Dustin. He is yeah, so funny. Is great, and he's like weirdly insightful for a lot of the things that are happening to them throughout all of this. Yeah, and he thinks he kind of like, I mean, all of the kids do it a little bit, but he thinks outside the box really well when it comes to problem solving. And he's kind of just a cheerful fellow. Yeah, exactly. He's uh, he's actually got a lot of wisdom, right? Like he doesn't allow for these petty fights. Between Mike and Lucas over Eleven being a part of the group, right? Yeah, he has to be the mediator a lot of the time. Yeah. And he's, and like he's a, a pretty good mediator. Yeah, but he's like reluctant. <laughs> no, he's like a reluctant but talented mediator. It's true. It's true. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I got notes on all the kids, but which one do you want to start with? Let's start with Will. Okay. Sure. Because he's the disappeared one. Yeah, the first character, I guess. Well, let's see. I think... The thing that I loved at the very beginning is how he, like, this show does such good foreshadowing. Just before he leaves Mike's house, he tells Mike, because they're playing Dungeons and Dragons, that the Demogorgon got him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was so funny. Like, I rolled wrong. 
Mm-hmm. I guess most of what we get from Will throughout the show is like uh, like him trying to communicate through the Upside Down and then his memories. So of all of those things, which one made you think or like was like, oh, what a great scene or I wonder what this is doing for Will in this moment? I think like the one memory that always sticks out with me is when he's listening to the music. Yeah, right? with uh, Jonathan. Bro- with Jonathan and his brothers just trying to communicate with him, right? Mm-hmm. And just show him something beautiful that like inspires his soul. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big moment, personally. Yeah, and that scene is actually happening, if I'm not mistaken, when you hear in, I guess, a different room in the house, uh, Joyce and Lonnie, their dad fighting. Yeah. So it's kind of yeah. like Jonathan trying to protect his younger brother from some of the negative vagaries of life by music, right? Which, you know... That's such a profound statement mixed in there. It's like, this is what we do. This is what we, some people need art for Mm -hmm. is because their reality is so difficult. They need something more beautiful to just point to. Yeah. And I think the thing that was so nice about Will in the whole show when he, obviously he's not in it as much as the other ones, but when he is, he's like sincerely curious about other things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like he he's a nerdy kid, but he's very willing to like listen to this punk music that his brother is showing him and ingest it. And like you get this sense with Will, like he's the kind of person who really actually pays attention to the things other people are presenting to him. And, you know, like the party sees him as the mage at one point, right? Because mm-hmm. he casts Fireball, right? That would make him the mage character. He's kind of like the in some senses, it, the brains behind the operation. Because you always think, who's the paladin in a group, right? Yeah. A paladin is someone who, so I guess this goes to Mike for a second, but I like to like run through the, the D&D motifs here. Sure, of course. Right? The paladin is like the, you know, the holy warrior who's like, he's got like the, the power of God behind him, right? So like, mm. he's just light. He's just like this light warrior, right? Right, right, uh, right. So, but, but, kind of a leader but not like the brains of the operation right mm. and that's mike and then there's you know the the mage at first of the operation is will because he's the he's the guy who's all honest and he's got integrity but he seems to have something it's a little something off about him right people say that there's something off about him but mm-hmm. his his friend of group his friend group recognizes that but then they kind of like exult in it make yeah. it give him give him a role right use his eccentricities as part of their arsenal as opposed to using it for a form of exclusion exactly right and then we even have that moment where in the second season where it refers back to this first season and it's like l is our mage then l takes on that role because will isn't there Mm. right but then when will comes back do they have two mages (laughs) i don't know it's kind of an existential question never really (laughs) answered sure yeah, yeah yeah that's fun So this is just occurring to me now, though. I mean, what's so nice, I guess, about Will is that he reminds me so much of like someone who is very capable of being actually present when other people are hoping someone will listen or pay attention. And I mean, obviously, in a sense, Jonathan is, is showing him that music by The Clash to comfort him and distract him. But... I think in a sense, Will has such a good sense of um, authenticity in other people. And so he's he knows how to pay attention to the things that 
are making them tick in a way because and and will seems kind of precocious in this sense i think he understands that there's so much to learn from other people and kids often and especially well-adjusted kids can be like this and it's such a beautiful thing but he's he's not so committed to a way of the world yet like he's not so committed like oh i know the right things and you don't so i'm not even going to pay attention to you like he's sincerely open to the perspective of other people you know true true I, i mean you can even just tell at that opening scene with him and the other boys when they're playing and it's like, do firebolt, do a safety. Come on. Yeah. yeah, He's he's, like kind of torn there. He's torn, but he's processing, I guess. He's like the processor of the group. Like, obviously we don't see him a lot in this show, but he seems like he'd be the, he'd be like Dustin in the sense that he wouldn't, you wouldn't find Will in very many confrontations with his peers. I don't think. Because I think no. he'd actually try to find what part of, especially with all the things Lucas is saying, I think Will would try really hard to find the reality and and the common sense and the, and the truth in what Lucas is trying to say, even if a lot of it is difficult or you feel like maybe Lucas doesn't have all the information. Like I feel like Will gives the benefit of the doubt to try and find something uh, when it's someone true. else is talking to him. It's true. It's a very good point. <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so then I guess the other thing that I liked about Will was how um, throughout the whole season, he can only communicate obliquely, right? Yeah. Like he can only um, communicate to his mom and, and to anyone through the lights or through forms of the upside down. Yeah, which is like, that's such a, it's, it reminds me kind of of, you know, Hel- or, uh, Helen Keller. Mm. Right? Sure, yeah. Like That's a good point that actually there are people in life who that's the only way they can communicate with us Mm -hmm. through this like fog and i think part of it just shows great problem solving on will's part you know like once we actually learn a little bit more about the upside down he's so resourceful (laughs) i know he survives for so long right weeks i think well a while anyway and it's i don't know it's impressive but it also i guess it made me think a little bit about how Maybe this is more symbolic, but he needs people to pay attention, right? I mean, we'll talk about this maybe a bit more with Joyce because I think she exemplifies this really well, but Will is only able to get through to the world because Joyce takes seriously the communication bits that she perceives from her house, right? Yes, true. And at a more symbolic level, maybe someone like Will is someone who can only communicate in this oblique manner that needs like someone's ear very close to the ground to be able to be heard. Well, he, I mean, we th- also, I have to take into account the fact that he literally seems to disappear from one, like he seems to be able to slip from one reality to the other. Mm. Just, yeah. How does he do that? Like, yeah, I guess just assume that's possible, but like, that's a little bit, nobody else seems to be able to do that. I guess in the story, it's that the Demogorgon just kind of takes him to the upside down. I guess so, but he doesn't eat him. No, I know. Was he like saving him for a battery or something? And then he's hiding. He's running around like he's running around, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I guess technically that wasn't very, that wasn't explained really at all. How, like if Will got into the Upside Down through the shenanigans of the Demogorgon, how did he get away from it? Yeah, <laughs> right? We don't know. 
I don't know. I, I think it's, um, I liked that motif of like, you have to really, so I, I guess some people, you have to really listen. Hey, cause no, I agree. Some people want, some people are quiet. They, they just, they want to be heard, but mm. well, and Will is different. certainly the quietest of the four of them, of the four boys. Oh, for sure. So for sure. I feel like it's an interesting, uh, thought about making sure that you pay attention to, um, the kind of people who can only maybe do oblique forms of com- of communication in in whatever way, like like in your Helen Keller case, literally, or in like an introvert or someone who doesn't feel. Because like Will saves them an- like a couple times and 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 helps them understand what to do, and yeah. the only way that works is because they figure out a way to the. Well, Joyce figures out a way to do it obliquely, I guess. And and it's quite the innovation, really. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was my thoughts on Will. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Okay, um, should we go to Mike? Let's go to Mike. Let's go to the Paladin. Yes, the Paladin. Okay, tell us about the Paladin, David. I just feel like, I mean, he he, he kind of feels like he's de facto leader of the group, but he he knows, like... He knows that as the leader, he's got to make everyone feel special. Like there's that moment when they're, where he's riding down the street with Dustin. He's like, "Well, I know Lucas is your is your best friend, right? Because you know, you've known Lucas the longest. How could I ever compare?" And he's like, "No, you're you're both my best friends. Like, mm-hmm. like that's silly to have one best friend. Why do I have to have one? Right? He gets the friendship is is so much more than." And best and status it's it's about a it's about a bond that you have with a person uh, a mutual appreciation society if you will mm-hmm. yeah that was one of the best scenes actually it was, it was very memorable when he's trying to tell dustin that look i don't i, I hear your logic and i don't care <laughs> like, yeah you're not right you you do something for me that Lucas can't do. So even though I yeah. know I've known Lucas longer and Lucas does a lot for me in ways maybe you you don't, Dustin, that doesn't mean I'm required by some sort of social law to only have one best friend, you know? Yeah. And I think when I was younger, I, I definitely had that viewpoint. I, mm. I, I wasn't as mature as Mike was. I was mm. like, oh, who's my best friend? And like... No, I'd say like there are definitely people I have who are my best friend, like in a sense of, but I don't have just one of them, right? Right. So mm-hmm. It's interesting how you can kind of evolve beyond that, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was thinking like what, at least one of the main themes that comes out of Mike's character in this uh, season is the uh, friends don't break promises, Yes, this uh, is a big idea. this is a big message. This is like a a huge part of the Stranger Things universe. Right. And part of like just the charm, but also the kind of like I know we've talked about before the things that uh so, some of the things that have really helped me in the last number of years of my life is getting back in touch with the kind of stuff I did as a kid for fun. Yeah, and re re realizing that all of the th- stuff I did for fun as a kid, while while I was waiting for life to happen, were actually the life happening things. <laughs> right, you know. Right. So like, it's these throwback, like loving hockey or 
um, loving books again, or uh, just the old video games I would play, nostalgia around playing sports at the park, just remembering those feelings. And I think that that is a similar feeling that the show is tapping into with Mike talking about promises, because keeping promises are one of the things that, and, and, and you know, I work with kids. So kids have this kind of code around treating each other. Like it, it, it's, it, it's interesting watching kids kind of interact with each other without too much injection on my part or an adult's part because they they have like a, their own ethic right like they have what, their what, own what, what what's their ethic well the, uh, not like an ethic around like a, a very reflected moral code but it's very intuitive the ideas around fairness right it's the in, intuitive the ideas around whose turn it is to do what these kind of things i think are so encoded in humanity that even children can sense a lot of this stuff right True. Uh, true. This kid, it's my turn on the swing. They've been on for too long. Now, obviously, kids can abuse that privilege as well. But I guess the point is that there's these kind of little truths. And I only say little because it's usually kids who talk about them and adults talk to kids like, you don't steal, you don't lie, you don't abuse a privilege, you don't get a longer turn than someone else, right? Like, just it's kind of like, meat and potatoes ethics that we teach children, right? Yeah. And I think included in something like that would be the idea of you don't break promises, right? You keep your word. And you don't lie to friends and you keep your promises, especially to friends. And it's just interesting to me how you never really hear children equivocating on these ideas. It's only ever adults you hear start to equivocate on these ideas, right? Like, yeah, you keep your promises, except, well, you know, like this other context came up and right. it's really complicated right. and I didn't expect this and I wasn't planning on this to happen to my car. It's like, and I'm not like saying there aren't legitimate reasons to have a different I guess it's the idea would be you 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 need to be very conscientious of the things you commit to. Because True. Mike True. is talking about getting back to well, <laughs> getting back to as adults we would, but for him as a kid it's so sincere about like, well you don't don't make a promise you can't keep because you need to keep your promises. Yep, yep. And there's something in the same way that I've found a rejuvenation of my own soul through excavating some of the things I loved as a kid again, I feel like there's something in that, we might say in the in the positive sense, a childish interpretation of a kind of ethical maxim. Like, do we need to keep our promises? Well, yeah, like keep, you keep your promises. Don't make promises you can't keep. Right, right. And especially in a modern world that feels so fractured or um, maybe not like like fractalated. I don't know if that's a term, but like, right. you know, like part of your life fractured. is on this social media site and part of your life is on this now Zoom call, right? And it's or, just like- um, this chat group. I guess in a sense, it's easier to get away now with not totally keeping your word on everything than it's ever been. <laughs> True. Because you, you always have other people to hang out with. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. a million people out there to talk to, right? Yeah. And I don't know what you think. It feels like a lot of times in modern life, flakiness is like a prerequisite in an acquaintance. 
(laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? Like, this is just the kind of default setting of people you meet now who you don't meet necessarily in your, like, as a kid or in your Dungeons and Dragons group or, like, people you forge very solid relationships with. Like, there's just a lot of people I meet at this stage in my life in either a work-related sense or a... um, not deeply personal sense, I guess, that yeah. it feel the small talk and the surface letter surface level conversation feels quite I don't know, like it just strikes me as the element of flakiness to it, right? Like true. talking for its own sake. And I, I just think that there's something really deep in the idea of remembering the passions of children when it comes to treating other people with respect. And I think Mike somehow really exemplifies that almost archetypal thing so impressively in this in this show. Yeah, it's, it's so well done. Like, because it's not just promises; it's it's also not lying, right? Or uh, friends tell friends the truth. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like, do you have any thoughts around? It could be about telling the truth or or lying or promise keeping promises, but just this does is there anything resonating to you in this idea of like we almost have one standard for children and then we let those standards slide a bit for adults? Yeah, I think it's because um actually you're gonna laugh, but I think it's because of the economy. Oh, okay. Like I think I think uh, I think our society is kind of breaking down in the ability of individuals to provide for like an entire family, right? Like, okay. So, and we're kind of like in this transient culture of moving around for work. Right. Mm, Right. And there's this whole generation of people that can't even afford to buy a house. Yeah. Okay. And I think, yeah, I don't know. Do do you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. Like um, people are, don't have enough time in their life to invest in other people because they're so busy trying to make yeah. sure they can and, and pay the bills. And you know what? And you know what? The, the real problem is that everyone becomes disposable, mm. right? Like, oh, you know what? You broke up with someone. Well, there's Twitter, you know, and and then there's Tinder if you have to go to there, and then if you know Bumble or Hinge or sure. freaking eHarmony, yeah. like you can trade people in. Like, there's you know, it's almost like there are stocks. Are they rising? Are they falling? Right or you know, disposable, we have these disposable lives that mm. we live. Yeah, with other people. Yeah, and I, I it's it's kind of sad, I think. Mm-hmm. So you think um, maybe the reason why we have two different standards for kids and for adults is, is, a, is a relatively modern thing based on economics? Yeah, I think like they're, like character used to mean something. It used to be like something people talked about. Oh, he's a man of good character or, or a bad character, right? Like right. that had an impact on things. Mm-hmm. People would help you, you know. They knew you would return favors. You were a loyal guy, you know. That kind of stuff used to matter. Mm-hmm. Now, like nobody cares about any of that. It's like, is your stock rising? Are you interesting? Are you going to keep me entertained? Like are you going to keep me, you know, keep – me from thinking about the fact that you know one day i'm gonna die like it's almost as if we've all become each other's entertainers yeah it's hard to demonstrate your commitment to keeping your word on tiktok yeah (laughs) you know (laughs) real long meaningful conversations don't really fit in a twitter thread right yes 
Okay. Yeah, that's a, I that's a good perspective. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think part of it too is it and it encaps is encapsulated more with your broader point is um moving into cities brings a lot of economic opportunity for people, but it also makes it so you don't know a lot of the people around you. So you don't yeah. actually have to worry about things like your character or reputation nearly as much in your day-to-day life. And I don't even know if it's like a conscious thought, but so like, I think we've talked about this before, but it's been a while. The sociologist, I believe it was Max Weber, brought forward these ideas. These are, you know, $5 German words, Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft, which, <laughs> and it's basically like, I guess the best English translations would be mm, community versus strangers. And... Gemeinschaft is the this idea of like you're in a community with people that you see every day and you interact with all the time. And so you have this very close knit relationship type with several people, not just a couple like intimates, but like maybe 50 to 60 to, to 100 people, right? Right. Versus Gesellschaft, which is this idea of I live in Calgary right now. This is a big city. Like I can easily, other than work, I can easily go a whole day without seeing a person I know. And I could be right. out, I could be around like obviously not with COVID right now, but I could be downtown all day and see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and not see one person I've met before. Yeah. And I think that a side effect of that economic stuff you're talking about and, and moving to cities is this like I don't know, like I mean, I think that there's an element of good manners where we don't want to get up in people's grill about their equivocations. And so it's like a passive form of pseudo politeness that allows for us to not have the same standard of keeping your word that we might for a kid. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's also very yeah. easy to enforce these kind of things on kids because they can't fight back, really. <laughs> you know, like, what, what are they going to do? It's just yep. interesting to me that we have we still we haven't lost like humanity people seem to have not lost the knowledge of knowing that it's important to teach kids things like don't break your promises, keep your word, don't steal, but are a little bit more ambivalent about the kind of ways that that can manifest with adults if that makes sense. No, exactly. And I guess just to tie back to stranger things, I I feel like this is almost an archetype. It could be an archetype of like children holding fat, holding on stronger to a right or wrong way of being with other people that is like holding on to it stronger than adults might around them. No, it's true. And I just think Mike is such a consistent emblem of that. He's always concerned about Will and trying to find Will. He's looking out for Eleven. He realizes she's a stranger to them. So she is also probably hurting in a way that Lucas can't can't really understand at all. And Dustin is struggling to understand. And Why do you think Mike understands it? That's what I've always wondered. It's a little bit weird in this situation. Mike, Mike's got a, a totally different framework for being than 11 right mm. like yeah. he's growing up in a nice home you know his parents don't really love one another but you know they make it work and like nothing bad is happening and meanwhile like 11 has been tortured and freaking like caused psychological <laughs> damage beyond comprehension and somehow these two 
these two beings are like feeling empathy for one another? How does that work? Well, I think Mike is quite intuitive. He's he's quite an yes. intuitive person with a good heart. And I think probably the good heart, if we're going to... Uh, we don't quite get a ton of evidence, but I think Mike's mom has raised him well in a lot of ways. Like She seems like she's true. worked hard true. to be a good mom to him in a way that his dad is, you know, is standoffish and, and kind of not present. So I think that would be one explanation. And, and Mike just seems to have the kind of conscience that allows him to have his finger on the pulse of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, maybe it's a boring answer, but it's just, the answer might be like, maybe some people are just more that way than other people. It's true. And Mike seems to be that way. He's really working hard well, he, he works harder with Eleven than he does with Lucas, but he's working hard to see Eleven's point of view and try to communicate that to the other guys. And it's interesting because Dustin is often torn between Lucas and Mike, which I guess makes sense because he's the mediator. <laughs> yep, yep. But I guess I just, I, I don't know. I see Mike as this um, young person who is struggling, but heroically with taking on the heroic mantle. Yeah, that makes sense. Like he's he's strong and he's he's, smart. he's rising into the role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a beautiful way. All these kids are growing into a more heroic version of themselves. But I think Mike, Mike, see maybe because he's the ostensible main character, he's appearing to be having that foisted on him the most. That's interesting. I always think of Eleven as the main character for some reason. Sure, yeah, I think, I, I mean, there could be, this could be, be a show easily ca- classified as co-protagonists. Right, true, true, true. But I think Mike gets, well, he just talks more too, right? Because Eleven doesn't talk a lot of the time, so we, we get a lot more of what's going on in Mike's head, so that even if Eleven is more of a main character, we don't know as much about her, at least in the first season, I would say. True. I think the other cool thing about Mike is he thinks about little details, right? Like he thinks about making yeah. sure she has stuff to eat. And mm-hmm. he's like, he's kind of taking care of. He's he's almost Mother Henning with <laughs> Eleven. Yeah, well, he knows, like, I mean, this is, maybe this is, and this is funny, maybe this is one of the things that makes him a good dungeon master in Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, he can pay attention true. to these little details, and he's such a great dungeon master. He's so animated; it's hilarious, especially at the end of the season. It's so yep. funny. But yep. I guess, yeah, like he's—I don't know—he's—he's he's got capacities that are, I guess, kind of what uh, they're like incipient heroic capacities. And yeah. it's interesting. It's like. <laughs> I don't know, like maybe this is a funny comparison, but I see Dustin and Mike and Lucas and Will and obvious, like more obviously Eleven and more metaphorically those other four as like we're looking at superheroes in the making. True. I, I, I really think that the, the virtues that the four boys have and Eleven too, but I mean, because she has actual superpowers, <laughs> it doesn't seem yeah. like it's quite of an insight to say Eleven's a superhero. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, yeah, that that's, that one seems a little bit obvious, right? <laughs> yeah, I see all four of them in their different ways as being virtue, young, virtuous superheroes or or superheroes of character. 
Yeah, and true. Mike's route seems the most archetypal of all four of them, and and that doesn't mean that I don't think there aren't super important things in on the other ones, but there's some there's something kind of bedrock about Mike's aspiring capacities that I think are they they evoke a major amount of I guess like on our part as the audience you know no it's true because I think it's with somehow each of these kids is a little bit different and we get and we really get to know them and and I think that's what you mean by character building we feel like not just as if there's a, an idea imprinted upon us but a real person Right, like there, there's mm-hmm. enough personality there for us. Even looks that they give one another, interactions that we get with their parents, we get, we're getting to know these kids as as real live, you know, people in our on our life. Mm-hmm. And each of them, though, is the is wholesome in their own way, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Yeah, no, and and I think it's why the nucleus of this show is the way that the kids are with each other. And I mean, that's. I think that's just genius story crafting, especially in a in a visual storytelling mode like television or film. It's just seeing the the very charming and humanistic way that young people build friendships with each other, especially when they are trying to find their way in the world with a really good <laughs> good compass. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. I say that with a bit of a tongue in my cheek because of Dustin which maybe is a good segue <laughs> <laughs> true talking about my favorite character Dustin just tell because... us about tell us about Dustin Luke well I think Dustin is a lot smarter I mean this is a weird way to say it because he's obviously quite smart I mean all of the boys are smart they're in you know the AV club and they know <laughs> they're way smarter than a lot of the people around them uh, even older than them but I think Dustin has a kind of savvy that is overshadowed by the fact that he is so goofy and silly. So maybe, I I think I've mentioned it before, but I think Dustin is a good candidate for this thing I've labeled the goofball facade. Yeah, you love that one. Yeah, I do. (laughs) It's um, This is is becoming a (laughs) Lucasm. The goofball facade being the idea that it's easy to underestimate the intelligence or capacity or poise of a goofy person because of the very fact that they're goofy so that when they actually show resolve and thoughtfulness and and self-reliance, it's like a, it's impressive when you see anyone have those kind of virtues. And I think it's like doubly so to see it out of someone who's so funny and goofy all the time. It's true. I mean, the best qualifying of that for Dustin, I would find, would be like his his knowledge about the compasses and like he's problem solving about those. Like, well, compasses point to true north and all these compasses are not pointing north. So that means there's something <laughs> so what's else. what's going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and, and what I loved about that scene too is that he's not bound by the pettiness of the arguments going on around him. You know, that that's a scene where Lucas and Mike are, are in one of their many arguments throughout the, the first season. And I felt an affinity with this, with Dustin to being like, okay, well, we have this problem. We need to solve it. I'm not going to get caught up in whatever you two are getting caught up in. <laughs> you know, I'm going to rise above it to try and solve the problem. And I don't know. I just think that 
all of that mixed with the fact that, you know, at the very beginning, he's kind, like he, uh, maybe he's flirting, but he offers Nancy the last piece of pizza out of the box. True. Yeah, he's got a big thing for Nancy. And his insight around uh, nobody ever says a word until fists get thrown, which is that insight around um, people let things build and build and build internally until they come out and the fight is never about that fight that one fight it's about several other things but because you didn't talk about them before you let them build and that's a negative and so yeah i just think like his kindness and sense of humor and ability to mediate but then also mixed with this goofball facade savvy that he has just make him my favorite i don't know (laughs) yeah yeah no, I love it. He he honestly I think he was my, part partially my favorite at least the first time I watched it. I'll say this. Mm. He was my favorite to watch. Not oh. the one that I felt the most connected to okay. on a personal level, but but I did enjoy his acting the most. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know, like did was there anything that he talked about or did in the show that um evoked any sort of like interesting ways of doing something? What do, what do you mean? Like, you don't necessarily expect, what are they, 12 in this show, I guess, in this season? You don't necessarily expect a 12-year-old to have that kind of, like, mature insight around how people let things bottle up until they don't say anything until they throw fists. You know, it's like, oh, wow, like, that was a really kind of wise thought, Dustin that maybe you don't expect out of anyone let alone a 12 year old I'm kind of conflating the fact that I think Dustin becomes even more impressive throughout season two and three but um yeah I I don't know I mean it's fine if you didn't have anything particularly strike you about him I'm just seeing if there was no yeah I've more and more in other seasons to be honest Mm, yeah okay fair enough and I guess the actor Gatton Matarazzo has um whatever the ailment that the character has with his teeth right mm-hmm. which is kind of um i mean to to bring it back to uh, a movie that is very reminiscent of stranger things stand by me when it's true when it's uh, true. that is that is a vibe <laughs> yeah that gordy vibe. talks about asking if he's weird like one of the best parts of the show is mike kind of celebrating dustin's weirdness <laughs> And uh, he talks about, like, the arm thing that Dustin can do. It's something, like, Mike celebrates with Dustin. So maybe this is this is the thing about Mike. But Mike knows how to celebrate the things that might otherwise seem weird to other people. He thinks are great about his friends. Yeah. No, it's true. And that's such a great sign of true friendship, I think. It's, so, it's really loving everything about a, a mm-hmm. person, right? So why don't you... Um, Tell me now what your thoughts were about Lucas. Ah, Lucas. I like that Lucas has pride, mm, right? Like, yeah. I like that he, you know, he stands up for himself and he's like, he's, he understands his value and he's not going to take shit from nobody, mm-hmm. right? And so when, you know, when Eleven hurts him because he's fighting with Mikey, he doesn't take that shit. You know what? He knows his value. He's not going to, he's not going <laughs> to apologize and, you know, He's he's in a partnership of equals, right? Right. Yeah. I just like that he, uh, you know, he's not going to play second fiddle to anybody. Mm-hmm. He's uh, 
he's his own man and and you know there's this respect this mutual respect that he and mike have for one another and they all do right it's like mm-hmm. you have to offer your hand right mm-hmm. the one who you know they have a code like you said and, <laughs> yeah. and lucas is uh is a big proponent of the code mm-hmm. yeah and i see i see lucas i guess as the realist of the group yes like I imagine in a maybe a philosophy class or a uh, like if you were training people to have the best forms of their own idea, you would want someone like Lucas around them to continually be shitting on their ideas so they can improve them. <laughs> yeah, and true. <laughs> I don't mean that in a mean way to Lucas. Like I just think that Lucas's Lucas's rebuttals or counterpoints to Mike, they have to make Mike's Mike think more about what he's talking about, right? They're not yeah. just kind of like whiny, angry, petulant, anti-Mike statements. Like, in a sense, Lucas is building the steel man versions of things of why Mike might be wrong or Eleven might be wrong. Yep. Nope, it's true. And I think that that's a really useful friend to have. I mean, he's he's the realist in the sense that they pulled Will's body out of the water. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> like he's uh, like, he's dead. Like, and, and he's... I mean, he's often angry, but that doesn't make him wrong. I also love how he and Dustin interact. I think it's so funny. The, the, there's just so much humor between the way Lucas and Dustin are just kind of joke fighting all the time (laughs) it's like you feel there's a there's an element of authenticity in the friction between lucas and mike you can tell there's a real beef going on there whereas the beef with lucas and dustin feels so much more mm, i don't even know the right word for it like it's almost a show yeah (laughs) it's a hilarious show in the way that they fight with each other But True. and and I had forgotten about his dislike of Eleven throughout the first season because you know you you know that they get so close later on. But I guess the the thing that's important about Lucas to think about in life is that um, he actually plays his role as the realist to save them and and to give them a heads up because rather than because I can't like Dustin and Mike are off trying to find. Will, I can't remember, but Dustin and Mike are by themselves, and it's just like, uh, that's the scene you were talking about earlier where Eleven goes to save Mike when he jumps with the quarry, right? Right. But while that's happening, Lucas is off doing the tangible thing, which is doing reconnaissance against where the gate would be and noticing the the vans of the government people. And so using the walkie-talkie, his actual detective work lends itself to giving Mike and Dustin and Eleven enough of a heads up that they can get out of there and then Eleven can do her van flipping thing, which was just so fucking awesome. Like, what a great scene. It's true. Yeah, like, ugh. So yeah, I just thought it was really interesting how the show managed to portray all of, like, Lucas being potentially the person we might dislike the most because of how antagonistic he's been towards Eleven and Mike. Actually, that instinct helps them greatly when he goes to spy on the on where the gate is exactly you know it's like that's what i mean about all of the kind of nascent virtues growing in these kids come out at some form or another and lucas's being i guess realism and courage where he's also like has the wrist rocket and stands up to the demogorgon with it 
maybe not archetypal like Mike's are, but I found it quite charming that they managed to make something that otherwise could be seen as a vice in Lucas, something that helps them. It's like all about channeling that stuff. So anyway, that just leaves us with Miss Eleven for the kids. Uh, and I and guess, what a life she's lived. Yeah, I guess the best way to like conceive of her is like someone living with trauma. <laughs> huh. Like really like rough trauma, right? Rough trauma. And just being and, used. Yeah, for an experiment. Like talk about being violated. Like that is a whole other level of being violated, right? Mm. Not even, you're just, you're just, uh, you're not even a slave. You're not even, you're seen as like a, person in a petri dish Mm -hmm. what's really ugly about it is that uh the dr brenner character because 11 is a child he plays on her innocence and her and her um guilelessness to trick her into thinking it's like a game or something fun or something she'll want to do you know and and there's just something so much more devious and disgusting about that, it feels like. Yeah. And, and because she doesn't know anything else, that's the only place she's ever been loved, right? Mm. Yeah, I guess in a sense, it's like, and maybe this is dark, but it feels like maybe kids or young women who are raised to be in the sex trade or to be some sort of human slave in some way, right? Or uh, under under the thumb of someone in some form for whatever purpose they want out of that person. And it's like this kind of really nasty pseudo sweet way of being talked to and treated to, to, to make it think like you want to be there. Like that person has their best interest looking out for you. Yeah. Yeah. And yet really what they're doing is just like, they don't even care about you at all. Mm-hmm. You're just, a just t- total you know, means. and you know what you, how you really see that is all of these people die around 11 because 11 scared or, you know, 11 is doing all these things. Right. Mm-hmm. And you never see any like compassion or upset by this Papa character, right? Like this yeah. doctor, like he doesn't care about anyone else in his employee. All he cares about is like whatever discovery he thinks he's finding here. Cracking the Russian code. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it definitely, your heart obviously goes out to 11. And there's an interesting parallel there about um, like people using others for their own gain and, and just like engendering a, a kind of Stockholm syndrome, <laughs> even. <laughs> like, yeah, it's true. Uh, by having like teddy bears or things that a child would want to feel comfort. Like it's just such a simulacrum of comfort and love in such a in such a nefarious way that it just, it rubs you like, oh man, the show does such a good job of making us hate the government. (laughs) You know, as if there wasn't already good reasons for that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's like, these people don't give a shit about you. Mm -hmm. So Eleven's lack of understanding and and lack of like street smarts, I guess, when when she's out and about in Hawkins and in Mike's house is is kind of the thing Mike intuits about her and and makes it so much more that he has to look out for her, right? Yep. Like she's um deer in the headlights basically her whole life now. <laughs> like she's she's learning about like some of the best humor of the show is Mike trying to explain stuff to Eleven like, "Oh, we can have dinner." "Oh, like egos?" 
Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. real food too. Yeah, no, not not egos. Not egos. Eleven. <laughs> you can have egos if you want, but we'll also make you real food. Just like explaining what a TV is, what like school is, and 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 I think, uh, yeah. Now I'm thinking about this. I love that it's kind of Eleven's innocence and goodness that makes Mike have to put the friends don't lie, friends keep their promises in such like kind of juvenile or childish terms or literal, very True. literal terms. Cause she can't True. understand it. Otherwise she, she wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, her sacrifice at the end for the, for the boys is so nice and how she saves Mike and breaks Troy's arm and makes Troy uh, pee his pants. I don't know. Um, do you have any other thoughts about Eleven? I just love how Eleven hasn't been a, been corrupted by the pain she's experienced. Ah, oh, great point. Right? Like, Eleven is still fundamentally good. And it just goes to show the the tenacity and the, the, uh, the good, like the positive side of the human spirit, right? Mm, right. So many people can become twisted and broken and destructive because of their pain mm. and we, sometimes we let that pain do those things right yeah but nice point. Uh, but she isn't that isn't her mo that it, that doesn't bring her pleasure or joy it terrifies her that almost only ever happens out of fear mm-hmm. because really deep down she has loyalty to her friends yeah she doesn't like you know that that man feeds her and then he's shot in the head right and and she's pissed off about that Mm. eleven is so well situated in this show to demonstrate the dichotomy between the simple but goodness of the boys and the complicated but willing to sacrifice many innocent lives of the government research installation right so like if you think about it in, in thematic terms, like what Mike and Dustin and Lucas and Will are willing to do for others is kind of like the polar opposite of what the government is willing to do to others. You know, yeah, you couldn't yep. have a starker difference, I feel. And, and Eleven is the conduit between those two worlds. And like her ability to pick one over the other is such a hopeful message, I think. Here's this character that's experienced such massive trauma and yet she's willing still to go back out into the world to essentially like find the goodness in it, right? Like she she only is really compelled to do anything anymore for the boys. <laughs> yeah, and like and it's kind of because they were the ones that like when she was most broken and and afraid, they were the ones who just and this is the beauty of the entire, in my opinion, Stranger Things narrative is oh you're weird well that's okay because we're all weird come be weird with us Mm, yeah 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 like right like just pure authenticity we love people who just love what they love Mm -hmm. now i mean obviously mike dustin and lucas are interested in 11 because they feel like she can help them find will like that's, that's certainly something on the table for them but as as time goes on and the relationship builds with her they treat her as a person, right? They treat her as someone who, yeah, you've got these kick-ass skills that we'll utilize if we need to, but we're going to be kind to you. We'll treat you well. We'll, we'll, and even from Lucas, like I'll treat you enough as a person to tell you what I think about you for real yeah. in this moment. Yeah. And that's totally completely opposite to how 
uh, Dr. Brenner, Papa, and the, and the other members of the government have treated her. They've treated her entirely in her role, right? Like what she can do for them based on her abilities. And so what's so great and if about... if she doesn't do what they want, then they, you know, they torture her. Well, they have no use for her, right? She's, yeah. she's as important to them as she's useful to them. Yes. I mean, to put this in very boring... <laughs> Kantian philosophical terms, the government treats Eleven as a means to an end, whereas the boys treat Eleven as an end in herself. And that's exactly what is the long-term iterative effect of why Eleven sticks up for them and saves them versus saving Papa, right? Yep, yep. And I mean, that's such a deep, that's an archetypal lesson, I think, is the idea of, um, it's the authenticity and sincerity of the way that the boys treat her as a real person that makes her interested in helping them when they need her help. Right. You know, if if Dustin and Mike and Lucas simply saw Eleven's powers, let's say, and then it's just everything was orchestrated around making those powers work for their own gain in one form or another, Eleven is not saving their lives at the end of this season. No, no. <laughs> Again, in a sense, the boys do things the right way. One of the other brilliant things about Eleven is how she just bears the mantle of her powers so nobly, Mm, right? Yeah. She doesn't kind of lord them over people, generally speaking, but she also isn't afraid to use them when she needs to. Like, she has this mat, like, she throws the freaking van over. (laughs) I know. It was amazing. It's nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's got like this, uh, the Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility lesson. She's, she does that pretty well for a, for a child. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, she does, she does great. And, and obviously using her telekinetic powers takes a lot out of her as the nosebleeds represent. And you just, you never hear her complain about it, right? You don't hear this, oh... I have to save you again with my powers kind of thing. Like, well, what are you going to do no. for me, please? It's just this kind of, um, you just get this like righteous anger out of her when the people who are actually her friends and the people who look out for her are in danger. And um, there's something so powerful about that as an idea, I think, that no, this show true. does such a good job with with her, you know? And like her confusion around everything, everything, she's confused about everything. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, you just, like, like you just, she, like Mike is basically her north star. <laughs> that's true. I like, mean, she has she has no idea what's going on most of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Again, this is where the storytelling part of it comes in really well. There's like the mystery is being unraveled to us, but also to her. Feels like she's starting to learn by talking to the boys about what they were trying to do with her at the government place, right? Like her memories yeah. get triggered by all of these things around that uh, is great storytelling, but also um, it's like she's being detective of her own life thus far. And do you ever experience that where, I mean, I think that's part of awareness and part of like reflection is hmm. being a de- detective of your own life. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, David. I mean, I would say, I think, I mean, I think that's a lifelong pursuit. I feel like I lived in such a way that that was more necessary when I was younger. (laughs) 
Yes, yes. (laughs) I'm not saying I don't make any mistakes now, but I've made enough mistakes in my life to be minimizing repeating the same ones. (laughs) Yeah, well, hopefully, right? (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, but I think that, yeah, it's like, that's a really good heuristic. After a fallout about something or a difficulty with another person or a group of people, like really looking back at what you did in that scenario that in the ways that you contributed to it. I mean, obviously in Stranger Things, it's to solve a mystery, but more applied to life, that's a good, like solving the mystery of your own suffering or mental unhappiness, maybe, you know? Yeah, like what? imagine being able to turn that around. Mm, yeah. And again, I would say that what this mo- the motif, what this show is doing is uh, that can really only start to happen if you surround yourself with people who mm, care about you as an end in yourself, not whatever role or, or advantage you can give them for some other purpose, right? No, exactly. You want people who authentically enjoy you, no matter of your status in the world. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we've talked about before, and I've probably complained and whinged about my unhappy like how annoyed i get around just roles in life versus personhood yes i have this little quip i use sometimes where it's like you know i might be this or i might be this or i might be this but i was a person first so yeah (laughs) this is this is what i actually care about and um getting back to that human first perspective i think is such a crucial element of any endeavor and i mean this is maybe this is what i'm talking about a little bit with how mike makes it so bald-faced when he says you know friends don't lie or friends keep their promises there's something kind of human first about that versus role first right whereas the government yes. the the dr True. brenner be like you know friends don't lie to their kids like papas don't lie to their daughters unless it's to get some info on the russians right? True. <laughs> right? True. like there's these For equivocations the greater, good. the greater good yeah the greater good and i just i think that um my philosophical axiom is the greatest good is always the human first way not roles not socially ascribed things we put on other people i think that's just such a such a great little motif of this show is the only reason the boys survive and thrive in any way is because they treat Eleven human first. Yeah, well, and she isn't as human as maybe we would normally, you know, attribute. These powers seem extraordinary. Yeah. But they don't care. Mm-hmm. You know what? Because this is society of the, you know, of the weird. <laughs> yeah, they're the misfits. Like, I love that scene where... Dustin is just all he really wants for her to do, or maybe it's Mike, I can't remember, but one of them really wants her to use her powers to make the Millennium Falcon hover yes. in the yes. air, you know? It's yeah. just like, and of course, there's Dustin these great Dustin, references yeah. to Yoda being similar to Eleven, and <laughs> and it, like the show being set in November 1983, Return of the Jedi would have come out that year, so obviously I'm a nerd for all that shit. Yes, but yes. just um yeah i don't know i think there's something really powerful in that idea of like the boys have all the right instincts to help 11 come out into the world that has otherwise only shown her pain and suffering and been a veil of tears and only tears and it's weird that even 11 wants to keep surviving here because she's basically like given up like why why does she want to keep going well i would say pr- the primary reason is the way mike treats her the way the way that right. Mike. No, no, but I mean, like, 
She's gone on. She's what? How? We don't know how old she is, but she's what? Seven to nine. Mm. You think maybe, so? Maybe even eleven. No, I think I think she's supposed to be about the same age as the boys, like eleven or twelve. Right. So she's eleven or twelve, and mm. she's lived her whole life in this horrible facility, being basically treated as a science experiment. Right. 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 She's gonna have a hard go of it for a while, and yet <laughs> yeah, somehow, true. Mike and and Dustin and our good friend Lucas, they. They don't see. They see through all of that. They just love on that person mm-hmm. because they 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 see the extraordinary nature in all of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think maybe a good little idea out of this is like hopefully, even for people who've experienced horrible trauma, the human first perspective can bring them back into the world. To hopefully part- to participate in it. It's hard to say, right? We we don't know, but. No, but I mean, well, okay, I'd, I'd phrase it like this then. There, there's no other way that could. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> so, anyway, that's the kids. Thank you for listening to part one of our Stranger Things season one episode. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group if you want to join us. So you get uh, contacted when we have new episodes coming out. And you can subscribe to us on all major podcasting apps. And if you get your podcast on Apple, um, if you would uh, consider leaving a rating or a review, it's a good way to help new people find the show. And we'd really appreciate that. So this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. Uh, My name is Luke Mason. And that other voice you heard is my good friend and cousin, David Parker. And we hope you have a nice day. And may the force be with you.